So, you know, over these uh, almost six years, really a little over six years, Pastor John uh, has been very generous in sharing resources with me from, from books to uh, articles to worship liturgies. And uh, one of them, though, that I always look forward to uh, are his magazines on biblical archaeology. Because uh, I can't afford the subscription. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, uh, and not just for the obvious reasons that, you know, they make such a great connection between the scriptures and the historic record, uh, but also for the art. So you guys that know me you know that I have an art background. It's something that I've always had a deep interest in. Uh, and thankfully, I must not be alone because every single issue of those periodicals has some great examples of some fantastic artwork. Uh, and, and I can, can tell you, or can't tell you rather, which one in particular it was. Uh, but somewhere around September of uh, 2019, there was a really incredible find that was made uh, on a mountain just about a mile east of the Sea of Galilee, uh, inside the remains of a, a burnout church that had originally been built about 450 A.D., um, subsequently destroyed by fire about 600 A.D. Uh, but after an extensive excavation, archaeologists announced the discovery of a really well-preserved mosaic scene inside the church depicting two fish and five loaves of bread, matching, of course, uh, the description of Jesus' story of the feeding of the 5,000. And it shows these uh, three rows of, of differently sized fish, uh, some of them broken up for feeding, and then these baskets of uh, pomegranates and apples and decorative flowers kind of just for decoration. And, you know, for our Christian ancestors, uh, much like the visuals that, that we use on the screen today, mosaics uh, used to surround worshipers in imagery. Uh, imagery of, of Bible stories and important church leaders and, and religious symbolism, uh, kind of the same way the stained glass did in centuries later, uh, making uh, the Christian message that they heard more easily remembered through the pictures that they saw, uh, pictures that artisans had composed and, and pieced together in those mosaics using uh, just about anything, tiny little bits of, of rock and, and shell and glazed tiles, semi-precious stones that as individual parts might look nice by themselves but connected together uh, form one magnificent piece of art that's greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, and, and I tell you that because in many ways the two psalms we're about to look at today are kind of like that. Uh, psalm 134 and 135 uh, as their authors take little, little shards from lots of different texts that we've already looked at in the past and pieces them together into one greater whole. Uh, and one that you can take actually home with you today uh, and put directly to use as we step into 2021. And so if you're just joining us uh, for the first time here in the sanctuary or online, we've been doing uh, a long expository book, or a look rather, through the book of Psalms that we started way back in June of 2018, and we're up to Psalm 134. And this is uh, superscribed a psalm of ascents. The psalmist writes, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. In Psalm 135, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. 
For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is that makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. Who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast. Who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. Who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings. Zion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. And all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, through all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. And those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you that we know these scriptures were written for our learning and for our discernment. And so we ask you, Lord, as we always do, uh, that you would lend us your Holy Spirit to open them now before us that they've been read. Uh, Father, we uh, pray as we always do, we want to see Jesus. Show us, Lord, your word and your will and write it on our hearts. Through his precious name we pray. Amen. You know, as I said uh, in the opening, mosaics as an art form have been around for a really long time, more than about 4,000 years at least. And uh, originally served as decorations for wealthy homes and, and palaces and public spaces, uh, but later as a form of devotional art in synagogues and churches. And they've been used uh, on everything from floors to ceilings, tables, urns, walls, uh, almost any surface really because uh, of their simplicity and construction that results in such beautiful complexity in the finished product. And, and I thought that was kind of a, a good metaphor for the psalms that we read because they are actually mainly put together from sections of other scriptures and i think you saw how easily they read into each other uh, but at the outset the first two verses of each of them are almost identical and then and then as you go down through it uh psalm 135 verse 4 uh, suggests the same wording as deuteronomy 7 6 uh, psalm 135 5 is is reminiscent of uh, when we looked back at psalm 95 3 uh, verse 7 of Psalm 135 uh, is almost identical to Jeremiah 10.13, which it actually may have been taken from. Uh, the lines in Psalm 135.13 can be found in Exodus 3.15. So you're getting the idea? Uh, verse 14 is uh, also repeated in Deuteronomy, or, or shows up again in Deuteronomy 32.36. Uh, verses 8 through 12 are repeated again verbatim in Psalm 136 that we'll look at next week. Uh, and from Psalm 135.15 to the end of that song is a repetition of Psalm 115 that we looked at a while ago together. Right? So, so in, in, and in looking all, at all of this, Charles Spurgeon said the process of tracing the language 
from here to other sources might be pushed further without straining the quotations, the whole psalm, he says, is a compound of many choice extracts and yet has all the continuity and freshness of an original poem. He says the Holy Spirit occasionally repeats himself not because he has any lack of thoughts or words, but because it's expedient for us that we hear the same things in the same form. Yet when our teacher uses repetition, it's usually with instructive variation that deserves our careful attention. So uh, that's all the pieces that, that go together that our psalms, the two psalms are assembled from. Uh, but if we're sticking to the metaphor that I brought up of mosaics, then the next logical question is, what's the bigger picture? What's the, the overview that, that pulls all of the, those little bits together? And thankfully, the psalm itself gives us the key right in verse 6 of Psalm 135 that says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in the heavens and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. So in other words, the thing that I think makes these two psalms greater than the sum of their parts, uh, the grand design that it depicts kind of the overarching theme that holds it all together is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, which is really one of the grandest themes outlined in all of Scripture, and the one that I want to focus on today. Because, uh, you know, if we're honest, we may find ourselves wondering, you know, if the uh, the scriptures written thousands of years ago and in a completely different culture uh, from this one could have much to say about how we deal with our daily anxieties in the 21st century. Uh, but then you come to a psalm like the two that we read in 134 and 135 and you realize that the times and places may be different, but the stresses that we feel and the problems that we face uh, are all part of our universal experience of humanity, right? And experience that we can share with the people of God coming out of Egypt, coming out in the Exodus and having uh, to battle the dangers of the desert and uh, threats of deprivation and the intimidation of evil kings, uh, or maybe even from the generation of, of this psalmist themselves coming uh, back out of exile in Babylon and the pressures of rebuilding their society and their culture, uh, or even just the, the spiritual battles that we all face uh, with our penchant for idolatry and fondness for the desires of the flesh. But over all of that, over all of that, the realization that there is an answer, an answer that may not necessarily answer every single issue of why certain things happen the way they happen, but an answer that does show us how to deal with the ups and downs of this world and how those very things may be preparing us for whatever God has in store for us next. And even better than that, the comforting truth that you and I are not trapped in the grip of blind force and random chance. Right? And we're not because God is sovereign. Because God is sovereign, we are not subject to the winds of fate. Just despite the fact that most of the folks out there in the world seem to believe that we are. Whether it's the, the working class guy buying stack after stack of scratch-off tickets, you know, hoping to strike it rich. Uh, or even the Ivy League professor trying to sound sophisticated and, and scholarly, like back uh, when Richard Dawkins, uh, who wrote about what he called a universe of physical forces and genetic replication where some people are going to get hurt, some are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it. It's not even the message behind that. Remember that old Doris Day song, K Sarah, Sarah, right? Whatever will be, will be, right? So that's not the Christian viewpoint. Because we can look at one another 
And come what may, we can say with the psalmist today, come bless the Lord. All you servants of the Lord, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord because as the family of God, we are not trapped in fatalism, but rather we are being trained in the school of God's providence. And, and you know, that, that, that may be a, that word providence, maybe one you've heard tossed around in, in church before in different ways, uh, but never sure exactly uh, what it meant. The dictionary definition of providence is the governance of God by which he with wisdom and love cares for and directs all things in the universe. John Calvin said of it, providence is the great security in life and the highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. And he said, for the Christian, our solace is to know that our Heavenly Father so holds all things in his power, so rules by his authority and will, and so governs by his wisdom that nothing can befall us except he determine it. You know, and our, our Lord Jesus even affirmed that same truth when he told the crowd in Matthew 10, uh, verse 30, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And you know what that means? That means at times that sparrows are still going to fall and hit the ground but not without the permission of their creator. It means that by his permissive will, God allows things to take their course, but they don't ever take him by surprise. And it means that if he's so sovereignly involved in the life cycle of a little sparrow, that he is profoundly involved in the circumstances of life that you and I face. Whether we are sick or well, whether we are rich or poor, whether we are happy or sad, we can be assured that the fatherly providence of God has permitted whatsoever things he has permitted, but that he's done it for our good and for his glory, and that one day he'll make it clear to us why. Now what that doesn't mean is that God forces people to do things against their will. This isn't some kind of Christian complacency. This is not an excuse for personal or spiritual inactivity, but rather God's sovereignty always moves his people to action and service and a courageous life of faith and, and and i don't know maybe exactly you know what you're feeling today but i'm sure uh, at least one or two of you have got a few things going on in your life that don't feel particularly providential right now anybody agree with that like, like worrying about an illness in the family uh, or maybe test results that you're waiting on for yourself or financial worries coming in the future or uh, even fears of the incoming administration. But, but the point that I'm trying to get at is that uh, when you start going down those rabbit holes of how come, right? uh, how come this happened, and, and how come that happened, and uh, how's it all going to turn out, you might just drive yourself a little more crazy than you already are uh, and, and end up more stressed out than when you started. But, you know, that's exactly the time to say with Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth in the seas and all deeps. And, and, and right now, some of you may be thinking, well, well, Pastor, that, that sounds great for theological discourse or uh, for a Bible study class, but that doesn't really make me feel a whole lot better about what I'm going through this morning. Uh, thanks all the same. Uh, or or you may, maybe you're thinking, well, how am I supposed to go out into the world and share a faith like that and convince people that uh, there's any sense of, of deliverance from the vagaries of this life and any kind of meaning in what they're experiencing. And, and the truth is, if you approach God's sovereignty from, from that kind of perspective, you can't. 
But, but think about it like this with me for a minute. If God didn't ordain all things that happened, how scary would that actually be? Right? If God didn't have a definite plan and a purpose for things, what would that leave us with? Right? Think about it. For me. It would leave us with a God who is simply reacting to the ways of the world. It wouldn't be a proactive God. He'd be a reactive God, simply doing damage control. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I, I don't personally find much comfort or peace in the idea of just a reactive God. Right? I don't know if I could, could sleep very well at night if I thought of God as some kind of cosmic first responder being called on the scene to minimize the damage and the dangers that hit us in this fallen world. Uh, I do, however, find great comfort in a God who, having proven himself trustworthy, ordains and sets all things into motion. A God who is working all things for his glory first, and who in turn is working all things for the good of his people. As we read this morning, and he uh, it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. And he it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast, who sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel, so that we can say together, your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Right? Uh, he, he will, and, and here's where I think the rubber kind of meets the road. Uh, you know, it's, it's God who determines what deliverance is, not us, right? You see, we, we want to define deliverance as the easing of pain and the removal of difficulties and the filling up of bank accounts and the escaping of trials, and hey, and praise God, many times it is. Many, many times. All of you could testify. Many times it is all of those things and more. But sometimes God's definition of deliverance doesn't necessarily look like what we think it should be, right? Consider just for a minute the, the prophet Habakkuk when he wrote, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. You know what he's saying? He's saying even if there's complete ecological, economic, outrageous collapse of the whole world system, that he was confident God would still take care of him. And you and I need to get to that place too because ultimately one day, uh, hey, we're all facing our last day when no amount of earthly props and no amount of caring people are going to be able to help us, right? Nobody's getting out of this life alive. But, you know, because sometimes God's deliverance, though, is facing that ultimate. It's facing that day. Just like poor Job. Remember the man who, uh, who lost everything except his life and, and his wife, and she wasn't a whole lot of help? Uh, right? But said, but said of God, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Right? Even if he kills me, I'm going to trust him. Because for, for Job, God was still God and still worthy of worship and trust in tragedy as in blessing. Or think of the Apostle Paul who said of God's uh, sovereign overarching care after a life when, in the heights of victory and the depths of despair who could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So know in the short run, none of those things may necessarily make you feel better, but church, they can make you know better. And, and until you and I know God and trust God that way, we are not very likely ever to feel comforted, 
or relieved or at peace with the ups and downs of this life. And I don't mean for us to do it in a fatalistic way. I'm not talking about having a stoic, stiff upper lip. Uh, it's not approaching life through gritted teeth to grin and bear it, but to bless the Lord like the psalmist did today. Just intentionally to return to the sturdy peg of God's divine sovereignty, the sturdy peg that holds that faith in place and holds it in place at the cross. Just as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And you see, this is where we can really kind of step back and see God's design uh, for our salvation as one big picture because it means, a church, God is not making up things as he goes along but he is working out an eternal plan, a plan that was not provisional, a plan that was not a, a plan A with no plan B to follow up just in case. When he sent his son into the world with a specific aim and intentional design to accomplish redemption for his own. Redemption through the intentional sacrifice of the innocent for the guilty, of the righteous for the rebellious, of the holy for the hellbound. When God took upon himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the punishment meant for the guilty. Meant for us, for me, so that sinful, guilty human beings like me could be reconciled to God without one ounce of guilt being swept under the rug, without one bit of justice being unserved, or without one drop of mercy being wasted, all because of what Jesus endured for us. Endured intentionally to fulfill the toughness of God's justice and the tenderness of his love, uh, and saying, Father, into your hands, into your grand design, into your predetermined will, I commit my spirit. And then he said, it, it's finished. It's finished. Even if humanly speaking, it didn't look like it. Even if humanly speaking, it didn't feel like it to his followers. Even if humanly speaking, uh, maybe nobody else believed it, but entrusting himself into the hands of the Father as he completed the path that was laid before him, uh, willing to be bloody, and broken to become the bread of life and the cup of redemption for all who believe so that we could, in the words of our psalmist today, lift up our hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And then together stretch them out and receive him here this morning in, with, and under these simple, humble elements that by themselves aren't much, right? Just torn pieces of bread, a few cups of juice, but together by the power of the Holy Spirit become so much more. Will you pray with me? Father God, it's truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper. Supper recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and asking you, Lord, by the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, that you unite us in your truth and love so we can confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine 
And we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.